It's a pretty good crowd for a Saturday. And the manager gives me a smile. Because he knows that it's me they've been coming to see. To forget about life for a while. Down at the bar is a friend of mine. Gets me my drinks for free. Says, you know, I could be a movie star. Oh, no. It's a pretty good crowd for a Saturday. And the manager gives me a smile. Because he knows that it's me they've been coming to see. To forget about life for a while. John is a real estate novelist. He never had time for a wife. And he's talking to Davy, who's still in the Navy. And probably will be for life. And the piano sounds like a carnival. And the microphone smells like a beer. They sit at the bar and throw bread in my jar and say, Man, what are you doing here? La di da 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 da. La di da 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 da. Hey, say, sing us a song, you're the piano man. Sing us a song tonight. We're all in the mood for a melody. And you've got us feeling all right. Hello, folks. So we're all at the end here, wrapping it up. Bow on it. Beep. Beep. Uh, this is the end of our very long at this point, because I had to take a break for tour, uh, breakdown of Dawn of Everything by Grab Grow, RIP. We'll talk. I'm fi- Next week, um, I might do a stream. It will be earlier in the week because I'm going to be out of town uh, later, but I'm probably just hanging out, not going to do a book. I will probably announce the book that we're going to do next week and then maybe give a couple weeks uh, before we start it. Uh, right now, I'm leaning towards uh, Leo Panich's book. But uh, we'll see. The Making of Global Capitalism. Because I feel like there's something sort of nice about tying the bows together. If we're going to start with a book that's like, okay, how did like regimes of power emerge? To now end on, okay, how is how do we get to the point where regimes of power are alienated completely out of human hands? Which is what capitalism is. Uh, as first a tool of a ruling class, but eventually uh, a self-aware structure of power uh, and will, frankly, that overawes all human will and subordinates it to its purpose. That's what I think capitalism is uh, uh, at the end of the day. At the end of the day, folks, that's what it is. It is the technological alienation of the drive to dominate that animates class society. Uh, focal point uh, uh, pivoted away from human uh, will and intention and into a fully alienated uh, algorithm of profit extraction. And so we start with how it started. Now we got, well, we'll it would make sense to now talk about uh, how that got out of our hands. Because if what GrabGrow are describing here, or trying to, uh, is the conditions that lead to the emergence of regimes of power that are human-based, that have technology in them, that are technological, but are still determined by uh, human will. Uh, That is the beginning of a process that inevitably, I would argue, once it starts somewhere, once the first tumor pops into existence, it will inevitably uh, overawe the entire world, and one and as it does so, as regimes of power dominate the world, the destruction of the environment, the distri- don't even not necessarily destruction, but disruption of the ecological balance that allowed that power regime of power to come into being, creates a destabilizing effect that over time destroys these structures. But 
because there is no challenge to the ruling class. It just reconstitutes itself with new, uh, uh, new cultural language, new technology to reassert its authority. But it gets more challenging over time because the exploited become more capable of resistance. Because at first they don't resist, they escape. Like they talk in this book a lot about how human freedom was sustained by the ability, the freedom first of all, to leave. And that freedom made it, meant it took a long time for power to assert itself over every citizen and make leaving impossible and requiring then resistance. And the worse it gets, the more resistance there is. And the ecological conditions that sustain power are always deteriorating and destabilizing over time. So new technologies have to be forged to make that power more efficiently distributed. Uh, laminate the coercive and consensus-seeking or um, the carrot and stick of society into one machine that can be operated at the push of a button. Because the thing that undermines class rule at the end of the day is, yes, you have a class interest, but it is not pursued by everyone within the class in the same way. It is pursued individually by members of a ruling class, which means that they might drive, push the thing in one direction over time, but they, can't, they don't have fine motor control in times of crisis. So they end up fumbling the bag. They end up getting diluted and destroying themselves. And this is what happens to your, uh, your kings and your landed aristocrats, the, the aristocracy of the sword. As the, uh, as the emergent bourgeois, who are closer to the new technologies of state and control, are able to exercise them more efficiently and take power away from the old landed elites. They get bought off, but their power is taken from them. And now the bourgeois power has been taken, not by the working class, as Marx imagined it would, but by the very machines that they used to take power. And to me, this is why, while there's a lot of great stuff in this book, and it's really, really useful, in my mind, to understand like human capacity, human social capacity, as an abstract concept, it's a failure at trying to convince me that there's uh, anything in those old ways of being that tells me how to avoid total an annihilation of humanity by the machines it's created. Because it does not have anything to say about those machines. It has nothing to say about the, the role that technology and ecology play in pushing us into narrow and narrower and narrower shoots where we are forced to destroy one another in greater and greater uh, displays of violence in order to maintain alienated class structures. Because they want to make us believe that once these machines get in place, once sovereignty is wedded to uh, charismatic politics and is wedded to administration through the application of technologies such as agriculture, that they obliterate that world and they make a new one that we have all been living in ever since. And now we're at the end state of it. And it's not an end because there's necessarily going to be an apocalypse, an end of humanity. That's what we dream of and seek and hope because it means we don't miss anything. We don't miss some sort of, you know, efflorescence of humanity. All we miss is like more misery. Oh, great. Fantastic. I'll get raptured up now. Thank you, please. But just a case where our rulers change to the machines. And that there is no more subject, there is no more human subject that there used to be, because as it, was as it was redefined by the emergent state structures, it is now being redefined by this stateless, globalized, universal architecture of symbols delivered electronically that have turned us into different beings again. Now that 
Doesn't mean that from these beings we can't build something else. But it will be in the rubble. It will be outside of this teleology of humanity. Because it is a teleology, and that's the big thing that's wrong with what Grave Grower said. They repel at the notion of teleology. But there is a civilizational teleology. As soon as you establish the regimes that these guys find icky and want to talk around and want to imagine alternatives to that could have existed at one time, yes, that's not necessarily teleological. And they do a good job undermining the notion that it is. But in the cone of civilization that extends until it includes everybody, there is an embedded teleology. And we're living in it, baby. So the, the end of this, the, the conclusion of this book is honestly pretty, it's a pretty damp squib because the one thing they've been talking around the whole book is, well, how did we get stuck with civilization? If there is all this possibility, if we always have this, and we live for so long in possibility, how the hell did we let this happen? And they finally get to gesture towards it. And I got to say, it is very uh, unpersuasive. It's very uninteresting. They basically uh, say, well, uh, Regimes of domination emerged out of uh, regimes of care because uh, eventually the function of caring for those who are vulnerable, which they say uh, early uh, social orders socialized, literally, the, the care of those who couldn't be cared for by their own families uh, under, the, under the auspices of the monarch usually or like the chief or whatever. And that that was originally bringing someone into a family, but over time it became essentially a role of uh, slavery. And domination. And it's like, dude, psychologically, that's probably very true. Like that, that is, that is the story of the intimate uh, social transformation, the psychic transformation that turns someone who at one time saw everybody under their umbrella of, 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 of social life in their this definition of like humanity, full humanity, uh, that I could imagine someone beneath me. And the way they say it, the way they imagine it is, you know, if runaways and, uh, and uh, the disabled and the, the catastrophically widowed are thrown out of uh, uh, the, the, the small nodes of self-sufficient and self-sustaining and mobile, this is key, social order that I used to be a part of, I can still find sucker under the auspices of, you know, the uh, the, the ritually-affirmed embodiment of the community, which is what, you know, your headman, your chief, whatever is. But that relationship can move from one of uh, intimate, you know, family to under, I would argue, conditions of scarcity and trauma into one of domination, where I don't see you anymore as a family member. I see you now as a burden. And it's like, once that's a great description, dude. But guess what? You're forgetting what you're, what you're intentionally avoiding. What, what would have caused that change is an environmental shift. The conditions for life would have changed. They just imagine it changing over time just like a vibe shift. As if everything doesn't have a fucking cause. I would say that the better, more expansive way to, to explain this and the thing that would have honestly made this book really compelling and fully developed, but they couldn't go with because it would have gone against their, their allergy to determinism and materialism more broadly, which is that, hey, they fucking uh, had this breach in their understanding of care because the conditions that sustained life in an equilibrium were no longer available. And they had to change them. And that means that eventually civilization will emerge. Just like a modern subject eventually will get cancer if it lives long enough. Not you can't say, oh, you're inevitably going to get cancer, you know, when you're 24. Or uh, yeah, on a day that a, a tumor is going to emerge. But you can say on a long, on a, on a given the fact that you have a basically endless timeline here because you have a relative equilibrium between humanity and uh, the biome, something is going to pop up. A tumor is going to fucking pop up because of trauma, because of social carcinogens accumulating. 
And that's, I think, a full telling that then we can use to understand where we are now. But their their ideological priors, their anarchism, makes them incapable of seeing it. They're literally incapable of seeing what's right in front of them. And it's because they are existentially repelled by the uh, by the by the uh, by the implications of that. And here are the real implications. It is well, I'm not. A, I'm not. A, I am not. Not actually a liberal uh, subject. I'm not an ego. I am not me. Like that's why it's 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 the socially like perfected concept of liberalism, but it is motivated by the liberal fantasy that we are eternal subjects, not socially embedded, not determined by our conditions, and we. And I'm sorry, that's what we are, and that is why. Change, if it happens, will not be initiated by some sort of collective act of will. It will be changing conditions, changing our responses to those conditions. And Marx's conception was that because of the common experience of exploitation by capitalism, you would get this new fusion of liberal subjects into a new type of relationship that is more like what they're imagining, an expansive social type of uh of existence, but you can't just port the liberal self into that. You have to assume that you will literally have a change in the subjective experience of life, definitions of words, what symbols mean, like what the self is. And that's going to change your relationship to everybody else around you, your notion of obligation, your notion of social, uh, uh, Social ritually pledging yourself to something other than you, alienating some degree of autonomy to a collective, to act collectively. It has failed to occur. That is a true point. But anarchism has failed even worse. It has not even been able to assert power uh, anywhere that has not popped like a soap bubble, much like those wonderful uh, North American woodland societies that they jack off to in the last chapter. So that's my beef with the book, even though I highly recommend everybody read it for the details, read it for the putting on its head uh, a lot of your in bed. uh, Like here's, it does challenge a lot of sort of un- thinking cliches that a lot of us have, including myself, instead of like really fleshed out narratives of things like the deep past, which are hard to get your head around a lot of ways. So you sort of let cliche fill in the holes. This does a great job of breaking up your cliches and challenging them and making you look at them again. But it does not do what they want it to do, which is turn people into anarchists, at least not this guy. And, uh, one of the things that really helped me sharpen my, uh, critique of this. What's wrong with my audio? Why do these people do this to me? Okay. Um, one of the things that helped me sharpen a lot of my uh, thoughts about this and really like honing on what was bugging me the whole time I was reading it, because like I said, it's a fun read. It's a lot of cool detail and there's nice conjectures, things that like slap you in the face. The whole time I'm thinking, like, I got a pebble in my shoe and I've got, like, a too big wallet. I'm just not centered. And it's because there's so much of this book that while you're reading it feels very convincing because of the language used that if you look back on it, it's really just conjecture filling in huge gaps. And they, they kind of win you over by winking at you and saying, yeah, we know we're doing this, but just, like, just take our word for it so we can keep going. The problem is that's the whole book. It gets entirely marbled that way. It doesn't. It doesn't pay back the uh, the faith, the good faith of accepting their reasoning with some big revolt resolu- uh, resolution to the argument that like rests on firmer footing. And so you're like, okay, yeah, it was a little shaky getting here, but now that you're here, you can't deny this. If it had gotten there, I would have given uh, would have uh, forgiven a lot more. But it just doesn't. The whole thing is that it's just all shaky foundations the whole way around, and then. Basically just saying, yeah, but it wouldn't it be pretty to think so? That's its persuade, that's the final pitch. And anyway, the thing that 
that I read that helped me really pinpoint a lot of things that were bugging me reading it is a review of the book by my main man, Walter Scheidel. Uh, anybody who's been a long-term follower of the pod uh, knows that I'm a big Scheidel head. I think that uh, he's a great one of the great living non-Marxist materialist historians. Like, he is absolutely not a Marxist. Uh, he is one of those guys who sees the teleology of capitalism and uh, says, good, the machine should be in charge. And it's like, okay, cool. Uh, but because he does have that, like, he understands that this is a process of this emergent system. And a Marxist would say, this is the opposite of humanity. Uh, guys like Scheidel, even if they don't know it, are really thinking, no, this is the apotheosis of humanity. That makes him able to see clearly a lot of stuff that Grabgro, because they're romantic liberals who think that their liberal subjectivity is eternal and not historically contingent and that it was different and it will be different in other contexts and in the future, it's not some fixed identity point, I'm sorry, with rights that is like somehow uh, transcendent of time and space. Uh, so Scheidel, one of the, uh, anyway, but his book, uh, I've recommended it before, Escape from Rome, great, great leveler, really good. I think he's working on a new one that I'm very excited to read. Uh, but he wrote a review of this book, which is like a perfect match because he is, in many sense, the absolute opposite of these guys because he's also a liberal. But whereas the grab grow liberals are repelled by the machine, Scheidel is a fan. And what in the when their job is, I mean, if your job is mounting a barricade and fighting a war, we know who we'd rather be fighting with. Grab grow, obviously. We know who'd side in like a, a battle, or actual battle we would be on. But in the question of determining like what the what is happening in the world around us, Scheidel's uh demonic uh, uh submission to the machine makes him a superior historian. So Scheidel reviews this book. Uh and I read the Scheidel review. And Scheidel's uh Scheidel also, like I says, that the book is worth reading, fun to read, uh does Challenges a lot of orthodoxies meaningfully, uh, and for a layperson especially, is a great way to break up, you know, uh, uh, stuff that might be like old in, and, and accumulated muck in our uh, popular, you know, pop science understanding of the past. But, like, their actual, you know, argument is just absolutely founded on uh, a, a lot of either stuff that has been around for a long time that is not mind-blowing, uh, that, that all of the relevant fields have, accumu have totally assimilated into their understanding and therefore not mind-blowing, or it's just conjecture based on that. Uh, like, a good example of that is they say... That in a lot of these societies that eventually become, uh, basically, it, they say everywhere that there is no fixed correlating relationship between, uh, you know, things like agriculture and urbanization and, uh, and regimes of hierarchy because people moved around within them. And there were seasonal cycles where people would come together, live communally under, like, control of a monarch, and then they would disperse. And... For uh, Grabro, the, the fact that that, might, that existed, that that pattern existed, means that those things getting together into a group don't cause hierarchy. But another way to look at this is that, on a lot, once again, on a long enough time scale, those, that phenomenon of people coming together in those formations is what prepares them to become permanent. Like, if they stayed out in, uh, 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 in like, you know, forager groups, that never came together, how would they ever have just, how would they ever have created a hierarchy? Like what he's at, what they're actually describing with this cyclical thing is the, the building of the preconditions for the hierarchy. People aren't going to submit to a permanent hierarchy before they have had the temporary one. And like that is to me an even more persuasive description of that evidence but the only difference, but, um, 
And there's absolutely no like his, the evidentiary uh, distinction between that interpretation and grab grows. Grab grows where it's just, yeah, they were all chilling. Uh, and that means that they're never going to turn into, you know, uh, concentrations of power, even though they did everywhere else. And how did they everywhere else? By first having those cyclical, seasonal relations. What they want to say is that because this didn't happen instantaneously, because there's no correlation between like, you have agriculture, boom, you have civilization, you have urbanization, boom, you have hierarchy. Because they're saying there's no like moment of like big bang explosion and correlated between like material relationships, then they're not materially determined. But what if it's a gradual process? What if it's a thing that happens over a long time and it accumulates and reaches an inflection point and nobody at the time realizes that's happening? <coughs> like they always want to say on this thing that this doesn't mean that uh, th these things being together here means that they were not on the cusp of developing some sort of uh, hierarchical relationship. But what about the places where there was Agriculture that came after foraging. Because you're saying because foraging existed at one point before the agriculture, that there was no cusp situation. But then there's never a cusp anywhere. Nobody is ever on the cusp. You've, you've gotten rid of the concept of the cusp. And that's fine because it doesn't tell us anything about the uh, determinative relationship. Like, if things like agriculture and urbanization do not cause hierarchy to emerge, they provide an accelerant and a catalyst for them to be developed. Once the things that do, which they have still not even gotten to, maybe it's care regimes, say, so, okay, your care regime changes like they imagine. Your care regime is now one of domination. Now, how does that go from something that breaks up cyclically to something that concentrates and becomes a self-perpetuating state based on class domination, it is provided the accelerant and catalyst of access to, say, cereals, access to, say, uh, horses and draft animals. The things that you're saying didn't cause it guarantee that it will emerge if the thing that did cause it happens. And the thing that did cause it to happen happened and would have to have happened and inevitably would have happened. And how do we know? Because, say it with me, it happened. If it happened one place in the human biome, the human, the Gaia ball we live on, it, hap it would happen somewhere. It was going to happen somewhere. And why it happened someplace and not others is not, well, here, I guess they were, like, better at facilitating one another and they were more chill dudes or something. They had better vibes. That's basically what it boils down. Oh, yeah, in North America, they just had better vibes. Okay, great. But in the place where they have bad vibes, they also have cereal agriculture and horses. So it doesn't matter whose vibes are what. They could have had great vibes over in the other place, too. The exact same good vibes. But if they have good vibes and agriculture and horses, maybe they get bad vibes. Maybe the, bad vi the vibe changes. There is a vibe shift. And it has nothing to do with uh, human choice. It has to do with ecological conditions, resources, access to resources, and uh, the environment. Like, for example, less stable relationship to food. Because what is where all these places where people had good vibes and nothing changed also had super abundance of food. Where did it? Where did uh, civilization emerge in places where abundance fluctuated? And oh, all of a sudden, these good vibe people have the same vibes as North Americans do. All of a sudden, the vibe shifted because more more trauma associated with seeking limited resources messes up, you know, the, the, the vibe in the community. But then maybe in North America, the same thing happens, but then the, the, the stable relationship with the ecology smooths it out. But maybe somewhere else, because you have 
a more unstable relationship with the environment, it persists. Oh, and also access to things like horses and fucking uh, cereals. Because one thing that they point out here that is kind of honestly a dagger in the heart of the argument is that they say, yeah, globally, yeah, this 5,000-year period before there's any kind of, like, uh, dominant social structures. And why don't we talk more about that than the 5,000 where we have them? And one of the reasons is because it was first, which means it's a foreign country in a way that the, the, the 5,000 years that came after and that rebuilt society every day, psychically and materially, along those lines, fixed it, froze it, is more meaningful. But forget all that. Worldwide, we see that there is about a 7,000-year-long period between the adoption of agriculture in an area and the creation of these settled conglomerations. Like, one of the things they want to point out that Grabgrow want to use to point out that there's no, like, determined relationship is in the emergence of the Holocene, that 7,000 years, that, that, that period when this, the, the gun goes off, basically, the stabilization of the environment after the retreat of the, uh, of the glaciers, There's all these areas, and that some of them didn't get any development of uh, hierarchy and, and uh, domination, and others did. But the thing is that every place that developed hierarchy, that developed the state, had was one of those early areas. And the ones that didn't, like, for example, North America and, and uh, the Polynesia, did not have sufficient cereal in their environment to create the sort of storable, durable, taxable surplus that allows a state to flourish. So you got a 7,000-year period. So it's 7,000 years from the, from the emergence of life in the Fertile Crescent and the Indus Valley and China and everything until you get the states. But because humans settled east to – they moved east to west, right? And the New World is literally the New World, not because it was discovered by Europeans, but because – the people got there last. So the, the pe- those, those, uh, agri- it took longer for agriculture to emerge. And in North America, where Grabgrow make their like, resting argument about the possibility of humanity uh, to avoid domination, they didn't get maize, which is the only real cereal in, North, uh, North, uh, in the Americas at that time, and, and, which is an inferior for the purposes of taxation and storage and uh, all that inferior to other cereals like grain and rice. So it's it's one of the least uh, useful cereals, and it showed up even later. So guess what? By the time that Europeans are knocking on the door of North America, it has been about seven thousand years. So. All you're really arguing here is that there you get about 7,000 years, and then one way or another, it's coming, it's knocking on your door. Because of that relationship between human social structures and their environment. Their environment. And, the, and like, their big thing is they, they picks on, they insist that, that if, if something is not the proximate cause of something else, then it did not determine it. And I'm sorry, proximate causes are fun to understand and useful uh, to, especially when you're talking about like the recent past and applying it to the life you have now. But when you're talking about like real, like defining answers to questions like what caused something, they're meaningless. It's like a building, once, once like this, the, 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 um, once a controlled demolition of a building begins, it's going to fall down. You don't, uh, there's going to be specific things that are going to cause the, the, the uh, thing like struts to fail, and you can describe those, but that's not uh, the thing that did it. The, the general trends are what answer general questions, and what these guys try to do is answer general questions with these proximate causes. But a general trend cannot be answered by finding the proximate causes for it. You need a general uh, uh, influence, and it's the fucking environment.
Uh, and it, like some of the stuff they use, for example, to talk about uh, cities and, the, and how urban life did not equal a hierarchy involves just like making stuff up. Like the first cities were not in Mesoamerica. They were in the Fertile Crescent, China, in this valley. That is where the first cities were. Like, they're literally just uh, fudging, fudging numbers there. Uh, and, and also their big example of Tachuchuan, the place that had like monumental architecture. And apparently when it was built, did almost immediately have hierarchy. Like Th Tichuan started off by, by Grabgro's own admission as this uh, cathedral of executions and ball sports and ar- aristocratic uh, violence that uh, marked the Inca and, and the Aztecs and the Olmecs before them. And then they was overthrown and you had this temporary, like 200-year period where instead of building uh, temples and monuments and executing people, they built public housing. Uh, and it is a very interesting story. It's one of the most interesting parts of the book, something I had no idea, no idea had ever it existed. Uh, but also, it's literally the only one you can find. So, like, if it's an outlier, you haven't proven anything. But Grabro basically take this and say, this is the model of early states. Also, that the, uh, the Fertile Crescent Societies had... All that stuff about assemblies, that's all just wish casting. It's like, here's public forums. They must have been where people came together to talk about political issues. It's like, maybe, maybe. And once again, if this, if, 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 if filling that gap in with conjecture led to a greater, more salient truth, it would be worth picking. But by, as just one of another bits of speculation, it just falls apart. And, and other stuff, they just allied. Like, the, the, when they compare the cyclical social arrangement of the megasites of Ukraine to Basque villages that still to this day use this, like, circular social structure uh, to do to, to non-hierarchical uh, civic um, life. And he compared them and said that the evidence that the Basques still exist proves that, like, these social models work. Uh, the Basque villages are not built out of circles. There's no... Uh, circular relationship. It is, it is a a clan relationship that is extended over distance. Like these are farmhouses spread out throughout the countryside. So it, it is literally taking two different types of cyclicality and equating them because they're the same shape. Even though one of them is is physical and the other one is uh, hypoth- is like uh, conceptual. And their whole argument that the state never emerges, that you never have a state, uh, is essentially that because you don't have things that correspond to the the 19th century German definition of state that was built by, like, uh, the era of great great power nationalism in Europe. Like, the the, the entire uh, discipline of history as we understand it as as a social science was uh, uh, was founded in Wilhelmine, Germany in the late 19th century. Guys like Len- Leopold von Ranke. And they defined a lot of the, 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 they define the terms that we use for a lot of historical uh, concepts, one of them being the state. And Gradgro take this definition and say that because that didn't exist back then and, and you can't recognize it in these things, then there is no such thing as a state. The state isn't a concept. And it's, again, because they disembody things from their social relations, and then they make them eternal concepts, and there is no such thing. But there is one one bit of really sneaky shit here that uh, stood out to me, because I, people who have uh, been watching these, that I have noted, I noted already, I I, I put, like, I've generally read this thing credulously, like, okay, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt while I'm reading this, because I want to... You know, I want to engage with it in good faith. And the story they were telling was very compelling. So I, I, I wanted to give them that benefit because I, I wanted to hear the next thing in, you know, a, 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 an open framework so that I can, you know, absorb it. Uh, but this one, I put a little asterisk next to and said, what are we actually saying here? And that was when he's describing the, uh, the Mesoamerican tribe that or the Mesoamerican uh, civilization community, whatever you want to say 
that allied with Cortez against the Aztecs when the, when the, the Spanish showed up. And uh, he describes their, uh, uh, their power structure there as this, like, democracy, as, as essentially as an Occupy uh, Wall Street-style general assembly. Everybody comes together and debates the questions of the day and uh, then uh, comes to a consensus decision and then acts on it. And, of course, I pointed out at the time, it's very funny that, like, this, this – the one actual example of like real democracy being uh, enacted in that they actually talk about, like a specific moment, is these people saying, "Hey, let's uh, let's ally with these literal demons in human skin, these fucking chalk-faced monsters, these metal centaurs belching fire that clearly want to consume the entire fucking continent." And people at the assemblies were saying, "These people are a curse," and they said, "You know what?" Fuck it, we're going for it. But anyway, so like that's separate from the greater question that I also raised, which is, what is the social? What is the political economy in here? Because you're saying everybody together is getting is deliberating, but is this like a bunch of yeoman farmers who all work their own land, or is there some relationship of dependence here, of domination, as it were, socially, like class power? Forgetting, oh, everybody gets to assemble in the in the in the great hallway to deliberate, yay, this is democracy. Okay, but what is the social structure? And I didn't know. And so I said, what is it? Uh, but this is fascinating. Uh, Scheidel is able to basically answer my question here by uh, completing a quote that Grabro shortened intentionally to try to make their point. So uh, when trying to argue that this group was democratic, uh, they quote Cortez in his letters back to uh, Spain, where he says, quote, it is uh, that the, 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 their government, the Tlaxcal Tlaxcal government, uh, is, quote, almost like that of Venice or Genoa or Pisa, because there is no one supreme leader. Or the, I'm sorry, uh, Venice or Genoa or Pisa, because there is no one supreme ruler. Uh, and that's that's where Grabgro ended. But the uh, the full quote is: "There are many lords all living in this city, and people who are tillers of the soil are their vassals, though each one has his lands to himself, some more than others. In taking an undertaking war, they all gather together, and thus assembled they decide and plan them. Now you might say, oh, okay, they all decide. So even uh, the vassals decide. But it's like the vassals decide now. Are you calling this a fucking democracy?" The, the Athenians had that, where the slave owners would gather together and fucking debate. But in reality, this was a hereditary aristocracy where about 100 people got together. The Roman Senate, basically. So the exact things that ruled in the old world, where re regimes of domination had risen up like a monster and destroyed humanity, are also existing here. Well, congratulations. Now you might say, "Oh, he was just uh, he was just assuming he was because he was you know he was from Europe. He couldn't recognize any other freedom." Well, okay, then his thing about them being a democracy doesn't mean anything either. Either either he had an insight or he didn't. If he couldn't see anything in, t in front of his face because he was too blinded by the ideology he grew up with, well, then it's a meaningless uh, piece of evidence either way. So yeah, that that's 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 Scheidel's review. He says a bunch of other stuff. It's all very cutting. Uh, you can tell that he's pretty uh, kind of annoyed by how much they like run down their colleagues in in and uh, anthropology and archaeology, the social sciences. How much they want to shit on them because they're a bunch of brainwashed rubes who have ignored all this evidence. And Scheidel's like, look, they all all this evidence has not been ignored. It's all been absorbed. And a lot of the people are, are a lot of people have said a lot of the same stuff you're saying. They just have not uh, decided to create a flight of fancy to support a political project. But there's a quote here 
At the end, I want to read just the last paragraph of the of Scheidel's review. Somebody asked where it's published. I think it's uh, I think it's in a it's probably in a paywalled uh, journalistic or a scholarly document. And of course, you know, this is the problem we have with trying to square the circle of uh, you know, pop uh, scholarly pursuit as political activism versus pursuit of the truth. Because these guys are trying to do a political thing, and Scheidel is trying to make a uh, a academic, you know, pr- refined point. And so they're doing different things. But I would say that uh, I would say that on the the narrower question of like, okay, Grabro, you're doing this politically, and God bless you. People should do this stuff. I think I do this stuff. I really do feel like stuff like Hall of, Hell of Presidents and the thing I'm going to do about. The, the crisis of the 17th century, I really feel like I'm trying to do the same thing Grabgro is, but because he's an anarchist, because they're anarchists, they're wrong, basically. It boils down to that, you know? It's like, you're not wrong, you're just incorrect. And that means I have to, when reading it, uh, try to understand that. Uh, so anyway, this is Scheidel's last paragraph, where he, after just, like, Winding up by saying their big failure is that they reject material explanations. They dele- they they reject technological. I mean, they don't just they don't even reject them. They fail to uh, integrate them into their analysis. Technology and and environment. Technology and ecology are invisible. They're not even engaged with. They're they're hand waved away. And these are like the things that. I'm sorry, this, this is, you can agree or disagree. Like, this is where it's, if, if you can't merely make any kind of empirical argument. It is down to gut feeling. These things either determine us in a, in a significant way, and something political flows from that. Like, it's not just an isolated fact that we can skip over. It is determining of our conditions, and therefore determining our choices. So we have to engage with it. Or... It's a big, gross boogeyman that makes us all. Uh, basically, their their idea is that the idea of determinism and, and uh, materialism are what prevent us from doing effective activism. If we believed harder, we would fix things. Like they literally think, if you consider technology, if you consider ecology, you are submitting to the matrix. And uh, once again, that is. That is a question of like deep epistemology that cannot be resolved, never will be resolved, and can't. You can just circle around them forever. And that is what this has all been. It's been me circling around my, our like conflicting worldviews circling around each other like a little like a little uh, atomic particle, and then throwing off light in the form of these posts that you then absorb. And then you can take from all of this, whatever, and apply it to your life. Aesthetically, emotionally, intellectually, and hopefully, practically. But anyway, this is the quote at the end of the, end of the uh, review that I thought really sums it up. After saying, like, look, you're just, you're too idealism. You're doing too much idealism. It's not, it's not to somebody who needs to know, it is not either persuasive, and if it is persuasive, uh, it leads them in the wrong direction. Like, that's where it boils down to, like, to somebody who has a different, uh, like, as, as essential position, it's not going to make me, uh, it's not going to change my mind. But for somebody who doesn't have that, is just sort of uh, unmoored intellectually, but wants to do the right thing, it'll push you in the wrong direction. So that's why it's a failure in both respects, even though it's a very good book that so people should read. That is, there you go. That is, this is the contradiction at the heart of everything that fuels and powers everything. So this is Scheidel's last paragraph. Their idealist purism traps Graeber and Wayne in a cage of their own making. Acknowledgement of materialist perspectives would have helped them draw more meaningful connections between past and present. If it was their mobile lifestyle and hybrid mode of subsistence that made it easier for Holocene foragers to step in and out of different forms of cooperation than it was for full-blown farmers who found themselves tied to their lands and crops, how do we compare Do service economies, digital tools, and globalization hold out the promise of a new dawn? 
Materialism is not the enemy of historical understanding. It is essential to it. Nor is it the enemy of social activism. It might even be its best friend. And even though he's coming from a different like, political perspective than I, I think Scheidel and I have a very uh, share a belief that you cannot act effectively off of faulty foundations. If you're being motivated intellectually, here's the thing. Like, this is where we talk about how, like, the coalition of humanity is always an intra-class coalition. It's also a coalition of different types of minds. There are people who need to be motivated intellectually to do something, to act. And you need to give them a motiv- uh, an intellectual motivation. And that's what this stuff is good for. But there are also people who don't need that, who have an emotional connection to the good and want to push it. And they just need to be told maybe where to go. And the way they do that is talking it out with other people who ha- have same combination of intellectual and emotional uh, uh, connections to the course of action of humans against the machine. And for people who don't need to be intellectually convinced, who, don't ha- who aren't operating, I should say, differently, they need to be intellectually convinced, but their conviction doesn't rest on intellectual belief. It rests on a deeper foundation of emotional connection. Then this is just going to be like, oh, if I'm just a, if I'm a pixie, if I, if I believe hard enough, I can just imagine away all of the chains of technology and ecology that have rendered me a fundamentally different subject than the people he's talking about. I do not have the, I do not have the, the uh, capacity to flee into the unknown, to remake in wilderness that allowed all of the liberty that he describes in this book to accumulate. And I will say, though, that uh, if, if Graeber was still alive and he read that Scheidel review, he would probably challenge the guy to a duel because he was a prickly motherfucker. Uh, when Debt came out, he uh, basically went ham on anyone who said that it wasn't, like, perfectly accurate. Uh, and I remember I read a, a Crooked Timber Symposium on Debt when it came out, and all the uh, articles were very respectful, and, all of, and most of them said the book had a lot of real... Uh, benefits and that it, it helped reframe a lot of their thinking on deep issues, but that specifically there was a lot of eliding and there was a lot of sort of uh, fudging. Uh, and then they, you know, and some people, and they had a lively debate, like, well, does that really matter? Are we just talking semantics? And it was, it was a pretty good uh, back and forth. And the last, uh, the last blog post was going to be uh, Graber sort of responding and, like they'd had these symposiums on crooked. Crooked Timber is a uh, web. It was a blog in the old blog days. I'm too. I'm a million years old. That before Twitter, there were blogs, uh, and people would get together on blogs to talk about things. And I got to say, one of the things that has accelerated human insanity is that we got rid of the forums and blog culture that allowed people to self segregate, and now have been dumped en masse onto the internet. And we we don't have rules for it, and it's driving us insane. Um. And the last, when they had these symposiums, the last culminating post would be by the author, who would then respond to everybody. And then they would have a debate, you know, or not a debate, they would have a, you know, a good faith discussion. And Grabber went on there, and he just said, fuck all of you. You all are a bunch of fucking pinhead shit fucks for, I mean, obviously not literally, but in academic language, like in, in the incredibly cozy lingo of, uh, of academia, which all those people who were writing were part of. He just went like ham on them. He went beast mode. And it's, uh, it's very funny that, to imagine him responding to that review because he would not take it kindly. Um, but I feel like that's a very similar thing. You've got, you got a lot of great detail in that book. Um, I think in that book, the, the fudging is different and better because his cumulative argument is, I think, more persuasive about you know, America wielding debt as you know, the, the basic framework for domination of the economy of, 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 of uh, global capitalism. But of course, you know, it, it, it doesn't have 
the greater framework is wrong. But anyway, it's a that's another interesting book that is once again like spackled over with a lot of fancy. But there is a fundamental problem with arguing like a debt jubilee would bring back, bring human you know uh, autonomy back because again, if we can't farm for ourselves, if we can't fend for ourselves, we are constrained in a way that other people you're imagining wouldn't be. Uh, somebody also asked about guns, germs, and steel, and I feel like that's another book in this uh, this kind of bucket where it's like worth reading, and I think worth reading to break up what I said earlier the sort of offhanded, unthought-through cliches about history that you carry around in your head. Because there's tons of straw mans in uh, everything, uh, everywhere all the time. <laughs> the dawn of everything. Um, the straw men are everywhere. But like they could argue, well, okay, sure. Academics know all this stuff, but the general public doesn't. And it's like, yeah, but I mean, the, the general public doesn't have doesn't uh, know much. You know, the general public is is pretty, there's not a lot in their head, there's not a lot of space in their head devoted to, you know, understanding early humanity. There's just a few big cliches. And because, you know, this stuff accrues over time and is communicated, like, first in academia, then into the greater culture, then into just sort of folk understanding, like, that is a long-term process. So, yeah, like, a lot of the a lot of the notions that people who even do have concepts about the, the the deep past, which isn't that many people, a lot of people don't have anything there. It's completely empty. The sh the shelf is empty. Those who do have outdated ones. So you're breaking up concentrate like uh, mental kidney stones. And I'd say the guns, germs, and steel because it thinks in terms of deep causes that it rips human life away from the narrative of autonomy that that uh, animates the liberal understanding of the self and of history. That's good. Because I would say that that is the big, those are the biggest kidney stones. And the ones that nestle, like a nestle, Russian doll, all the other misconceptions about like human civilization, who we are, how we got here, the value of human life, what we should be doing with it, are around a narrativized understanding of, of human life that centralizes autonomy and will. Because that's how you get the, the vast majority of people in the Western world totally fine with a horrifyingly uh, unequal social regime that sees people starving in the billions amidst unconceivable plenty. It's because they have it coming. It's because they are morally culpable. And if your understanding of, of, of history of, is a narrativized collection of individual decisions by people and groups, then you have a narrative that makes it their fault. If you understand it, though, in these terms, then the... the the judgment disappears. Uh, the, the moral distinction disappears, and you just have people, all of whom deserve exactly what all the other of them do at the exact same amount. And honestly, these guys are too fully committed to anarchist moralism and liberal moralism to, to make the connection. But if you accept this, another thing you can take from it is, well, uh, I guess the, the Native Americans were pretty good, you know. They, they were able to vibe. But humans just let this happen to them. And at the end of the day, it's the fault of those who, will re who refuse to change their minds. Okay, so that was the book. We'll have a little chat next week. I'll, I'll, I'll tease it now. I think we're going to go with Leo Panitch's Making of Global Capitalism. Got to get a copy of that. Don't own one. But uh, 
and I like I like to get the I I have I've done audiobooks, but I've gotten to the point. I know I've done uh, Kindle. It's so convenient, but there's something about having a, a physical copy that's more uh, uh, reassuring. But anyway, or maybe not. I will confirm it next week. Like I said, probably Wednesday. So take it sleazy.